If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willard's getting booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson! It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Uh, the good news, this is uh, good news, inflation, uh, 2.9%. We're dipping below that 3, uh, which is always uh, getting closer to that range of 2. <laughs> and at what point? Come on. Convince the Bank of Canada guy. Come on. Come on. It's a half a point. It's a ninth, uh, point nine. Come on. Let, let's do it. So anyway, uh, long story short is it's not going up and, uh, it's, uh, it's flat or dropping a bit, actually, 2.9%. Good. We feel better about that. All right. What else we got? Uh, the Ontario legislature, uh, legislature is back in session. Uh, they've been off for 10 weeks, so they are filled with it. They are filled with vim and vigor and, uh, and, and the Get It Done Act, which we'll try to dissect over the course of the show. Or as I like to say it, the Get Her Done Act. The Doogie Get Her Done Act. Get Her Done. Get Her Done. Uh, but there's no apostrophes or ers in this. It's just Get It Done Act. It's one of those omni, uh, omni bills, omnibus bill, bills. It's huge, man. And uh, it's got a whole pile of things in it that uh, that they are pushing forward. So we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later. And it also raises the uh, question about the opposition and how um, they're going to approach things this year, uh, you know, in a new session. And I actually heard a comment over the weekend where uh, Merritt Stiles of the uh, NDP, provincial NDP, said, you know, we're going to do less about, um, you know, pointing fingers and yelling and and more about coming up with solutions. So we'll see if that happens uh, moving forward, because I'm not sure issues like scandals in the Greenbelt are really kitchen table issues for Ontarians right now. Um, maybe in a perfect world where there's food on the table and we can afford uh, rent or Netflix or what have you, uh, but things being the way they are, I- I'm not sure that the opposition is coming at uh, uh, kitchen table issues that are affecting everyday Canadians or Ontarians. Here's a clip of what uh, the NDP leader had to say pre-session. I think this this bill, this omnibus bill that the government's introducing today, is is just a distraction uh, from uh, what the government's uh, scandals that they're mired in, and what real people in this province are struggling with, which is the the cost of living, the fact that they can't find an emergency room when they need one. So there you have it. Um, you know, housing crisis and healthcare crisis contributed with, uh, you know, population surges, whether it's international students, temporary workers, uh, people immigrating to this country. I don't think Canadians give a rat's rear end about scandals anymore. I don't think they give a damn about the green belt. I think what they care about is getting a house built for their kids that they will be able to afford. And I already read a report earlier today that said they have to build the equivalent of New Brunswick, I believe it was. Or was in Nova Scotia uh, in order a year in order to to even come close to those goals. So, you know, a, a scandal plagued. I don't know. What's the scandal? I, I, is it any less than what our federal government is going through? Or, or again, are they talking about issues that resonate around the kitchen table? And those are largely I'd say 95% affordability issues, whether it's housing, whether it's putting food on the table, whether it is healthcare, uh, which always ranks high. So, you know, it'll be fascinating to see uh, what the solutions are as we move forward, because uh, I think really at, at this point now, Canadians are, are just tuning it out and... Uh, and, and waiting for change at the federal level. But it'll be fascinating, uh, and especially now with uh, Bonnie Crombie heading up the Liberals and what she gets a seat and such, uh, I'm sure it'll be, I'm sure it'll all be a distraction. Uh, and hopefully it, it is a great distraction from the hell that we're all really going through. All right, enough of that. Uh, we'll see what happens when we get going in another edition of uh, the Legislative Assembly. Also, this is great news coming as Hamilton continues to uh, adapt and change with the times and, and, and still uh, at its core be what it has always been. And that is a hub, a transportation hub, a hub on the Great Lakes and uh, an addition of a new flour mill. 
Hill in Hamilton Harbor, becoming an agri-food hub, which, of course, food is always a growing industry. And again, uh, with what made Hamilton great back in the day and attractive to settlers is simply its its location at the head of the lake and its transportation facility. So good to see. We'll talk about that coming up uh, early on in this hour. Also more about Ford government's get it done act and whatever that means. And also should operating systems for cars be designed by Blackberry or somebody else like that? You know, it's not a case of protecting your key fob anymore. Uh, the bad guys are going into your car and with a laptop and just plugging in and reprogramming. It doesn't matter which your fob is in or what kind of box or such. Is this the answer or, or is it? And is this all just the love of the key fob? My goodness, for the love of the car. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. Also, uh, foreign interference. We remember that inquiry that is going on. A couple of key groups have pulled out of it saying it's just uh, it's it's whitewashing things. So we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Here's some uh, very modern, very mar- modern version of uh, an historic industry in Hamilton. With the addition of a new flour mill, Hamilton is taking bigger and bigger steps towards becoming an agri-food hub. To talk more about all of this, Ian Hamilton is with us, President and CEO of Hamilton Oshawa Port Authority, and here now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, Scott. Nice to be here. So, Ian, tell us about this project and, and what exactly it involves. Uh, so there's, it's kind of a, a bit of a game of Tetris here where we've, um, we've relocated, um, Sucrocan away from, uh, one of our peers and, uh, they're building, uh, you may have picked up in the last, uh, week the, the announcement they're building, a a new sugar refinery facility. And that's yeah. allowed, uh, that's allowed space for, um, Parrish and Heinbecker to expand and they're going to increase their, um, uh, storage capacity for export cargoes and they're going to, um, at another flour mill there. So it's uh, it's really been exciting for us for the last couple of weeks. This almost seems full circle when you look at, at uh, Hamilton's history and it, how it started way back when. Yeah, yeah, and you're, you're entirely right. And uh, there, there's there's always been agricultural um, moving moving through the port, but uh, very much we are, we are and still are, were and still are a very strong uh, steel port. And, uh, but as, as we've seen some of the, um, steel volume, uh, steel volumes reduce for, uh, steel making from, from the Stoko facility, uh, we've seen it replaced by, uh, more agriculture for our exports. So talk a little bit more about growing Hamilton as an agri-food hub and, and how this contributes to it. Obviously, as you mentioned a few weeks ago, the announcement of, of the sugar refinery and now this. Yeah, and it's it really boils down to a strategy that we developed um, in in conjunction with the uh, with the city of Hamilton to really focus on agri food as a uh, as an area of um, economic development. And over a decade ago, we started investing in um, in agricultural facilities, be it uh, be it silos or be it uh, refining uh, refining facilities. And we're we're starting to see the the success of that, and it continue to continue to grow. So. From from the Port Authority itself, over a, about a decade ago, we were doing approximately 11 million tons, and we're still still doing 11 million tons. The big difference is that um, a decade ago, nine percent of that volume was agriculture, and today, 31 percent of it is. Hmm. Why is Hamilton so well suited for all of this? A, co- a combination of reasons. One one being that um, of sort of the uh, the Golden Horseshoe is a is a wonderful um, wonderful growing area. And we've got uh, great, um, great cash crop production through it. Um, Hamilton is very well positioned in terms of the facility having the uh, road, the rail, and the and obviously the marine for uh, for exports. And then from a um, from an inbound side, on the sugar side of it, it's um, it's really well positioned with the proximity to the U.S. markets and also the uh, manufacturing of um, of uh, f- food and uh, confectionery in the in the local area. So it's, um, it's sort of this real convergence of um, all sorts of different, uh, different very positive, um, positive aspects. But um, certainly one of the biggest, um, biggest contributors has been the, the investments that have been made over the last decade. Uh, we've certainly saw with the uh, global pandemic and such, uh, supply chains uh, be stressed and, and stress added to them. What, what about the future and, and how, does that, how does Hamilton bode well for, or, uh, for, for the future and the growth of this industry? Yeah, the 
when you look at the greater Toronto Hamilton area, um, and you get into even even to Niagara, but it's one of the fastest growing um, population centers in all of um, of all of North America. And now I think it's um, it's fourth overall in terms of in terms of population. And when you look at Canada's strategy around um, immigration and bringing in uh, new new immigrants to the country, they are going to ro- really uh, locate into these population centers. So so Hamilton is a, in a perfect spot to uh, to service these. Uh, these, these new communities coming in, and then you look at the overall global situation in which that um, they're they're starting to consume more and more uh, protein. Uh, we need to take advantage of the products produced in southern Ontario that actually go into animal feed that create the uh, create the proteins. And when I say protein, I mean uh, I mean cows and chickens and uh, yeah. eggs and all of those types of things. So it's um it's again. We kind of have this wonderful, uh, wonderful growing, uh, growing area combined with um, a huge, uh, huge population. So it, um, it's again, it's, it's, it's really put us in a very strong position. So more of this coming, Ian, especially as you see the decline of one in- industry and then the increase, hopefully, of this. So obviously, uh, where does this go? More on the way. Yeah, and it's um, it's quite fascinating because the um, Ontario has increased productivity. Uh, probably um, somewhere around seven to eight percent per year in terms of the uh, the farms, and that's been through uh, precision farming, and that's been through um, uh, fun- fundamentally uh, modified and uh, hybrid crops. That, uh, mm-hmm. for example, corn stalks are now shorter than they were before, and that allows us to put our rows closer together and um, and produce more um, more corn from the same uh, same acre of land. So we'll continue to see these improvements. Um, you'll continue to see global demand, and Canada should be extremely proud because our products are looked at uh, looked at globally as being um, extremely sustainable, as well as um, good quality. And fundamentally, you buy from Canada, you you get what you bought, which is um, not 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 true everywhere in the world. So it's um, it, it positions us very very well. Uh, addition of a new flour mill in Hamilton, taking uh, bigger steps towards the agri-food industry. Ian Hamilton uh, with us, President and CEO of Hamilton Oshawa Port Authority. Great to hear, Ian. Good luck. Thank you, thank you very much, Scott, and thanks for having us on the show. Legislature back today in Ontario after a uh, a vacation, uh, about a 10-week break, I guess, and the Ford government introducing the Get It Done Act. What is it? And uh, apparently it's quite large and includes a lot of things. Let's bring in Prabhmeet Singh Sarkaria, uh, Minister of Transportation with the Government of Ontario, and here now. Prabhmeet, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So tell us about this act, uh, the Get It Done Act. What is it? What, what's it all about? Well, thank you. No, this is a, a continuation of our government's uh, commitment to not only keep costs down for families and businesses, but also to to build Ontario. It's about you know we were we received a strong mandate to to build in this province. Um, we're putting forward a piece of legislation that is going to allow us um, to reduce times on how um, quickly we can get projects off the ground, uh, to build highways, to build transit. Uh, it's about uh, making sure that no future government uh, can ever toll a highway. Uh, we're also legislating the freeze on driver's licenses and Ontario photo cards uh, uh, that uh, uh, will put more money into people's pockets. And it's about making sure that, uh, you know, ensuring that uh, the population the growth that we're seeing all across Ontario, that we have the necessary investments in infrastructure like highways and transit, uh, um, that they can get off the ground and we can start getting shovels uh, into the ground and, and start building uh, for the next generation. So we're really excited about it. Uh, it's about uh, building strong uh, communities, uh, and uh, uh, today we started off the legislature by ensuring that uh, we're doing all we can to transform the way uh, people commute uh, in, in this province. Now, Prabhmeet, normally I'd go off on some questions on that, but as, as you're mentioning all of that, and, and and it sounds positive, all I can think of is our federal environment environment minister who's saying that, you know, we're not funding any more highways. They're basically saying the opposite of what you're saying. What, what's your reaction to that? Just absolutely gobsmacked by that, uh, that comment by the federal uh, environment minister. I think it couldn't be more out of touch. Um, with uh, what people are, are facing on the streets every single day. You know, I can pick any corner of this province, um, uh, you know, whether it be in Hamilton, whether it be in Toronto, whether it be in a place like Mississauga, Brampton, Vaughan. Uh, Gridlock is at an all-time high. 
we have to make investments into highways, into roads. Um, you know, we're seeing an, another million people in Ontario in the next two years. We've received a million people into this province in the last two years. How can we not invest in infrastructure like roads uh, across this province? You know, roads are so critical uh, to getting people from, uh, you know, from point A to point B, whether that be to work or back home or to, uh, to get to something even as uh, much as a Jays game. This is all about building an integrated transit system. And, you know, that remark couldn't have been more out of touch. That's why we're focused on making sure we're building for Ontario. We're getting shovels in the ground uh, and that we do whatever we can to, to help alleviate the, the challenges for families and businesses in this province. Well, and as you mentioned, Prabhmeet, how do you how do you explain uh, the, the need for housing that uh, is coming down the pipe, the population explosion, and yet, yet saying that we have an adequate road structure? And, and obviously, that includes transportation and, and what have you. I, and, I, and I don't mean to, to to throw stones here, but I remember the McGin- uh, uh, Dalton McGinty saying this twenty some odd years ago that they weren't and they weren't interested in building anything, and we are where we are now because of that so uh has has the word build changed because for the for the longest time it was a bad word in ontario yeah no look this is you know we are facing uh, quite the challenge in this province right now. we've been left with decades of inaction on key projects like the housing um on infrastructure on, on transit on highways um that's why we've got to put together pieces of legislation that we have today to get shovels in the ground it's been more important than ever before today you know, I look at and talk to people every single day that say that their commute times are getting longer. You know, um, we talk about the, the Highway 413 and Bradford Bypass that we're going to build. You know, we want people to be spending time with their families, not stuck behind the wheel um, as we see this population growth. You know what? It would be one thing if we didn't have population growth, but the federal government has given us some very ambitious targets on, on how many people we're going to have in Ontario. Uh, we need to manage that. And uh, not only do we have to manage that, uh, we need to make sure that we're accelerating the growth of our uh, whether it be housing, transit, uh, highways, um, because we need it desperately. And, and that's exactly what Premier Ford and our government is doing by making sure we get shovels in the ground. We're putting in the tools to allow us to get shovels in the ground quicker. Uh, and we know this is going to have a, a benefit not only to commuters who are going to save time, spend time with their families or doing things that they love, but also uh, improve the productivity of our economy, create better jobs, bring more jobs, bring um, prosperity to this province. So we're on a good track here. We're going to spend close to $100 billion over the next 10 years investing in public transit and highways, and that's going to transform this province, uh, and it's going to make Ontario an internationally renowned destination like it is today, but continue building on the progress that we've made with Premier Ford and our government here. Uh, all right, so to get into the Get It Done Act, uh, no carbon tax without a referendum, no more, uh, no new toll roads. Um, when you pass legislation like this, is that good until the next government comes in and just changes it? Well, it's about giving certainty to the people. You know, this is going to go through the legislative process. Uh, there will be votes on it, but we think it's very certain for people to know where, where everyone stands. Um, mm-hmm. This is a government that has always been committed to keeping costs down, you know, whether it's been making sure that we fought the carbon tax every step of the way to the Supreme Court as a government because we don't think families should be punished for driving his kids to, to soccer practice. It's about making sure um, that even now when we put the rebate in for almost a 10 cents a liter off your gas uh, gas tax, it's about not punishing the driver uh, that are all, is already so challenged. Um, you know, when we brought in the, the license plate sticker removal, it was the same thing. We are hearing from people every single day. It's how can we make life easier for people? And give them certainty um, and give them certainty that this government will never toll um, on the new highways and the roads that we're, we're building and we own and operate uh, from our perspective. Because it's critical to have that certainty as people move all across this province and commute then into other parts of the province to, to work. Um, it's important that they, they know what uh, their government is going to do. And that's exactly what uh, we're focused on doing is putting more money into your pockets, delivering that certainty and ensuring um, that families and businesses uh, uh, have lower costs. Uh, only got about a minute left here. Um, last question. Are you concerned that the Fed say they're no longer going to fund these large projects, whether it's a, a 413, a, a what have you? Mind you, uh, the Prime Minister has said after the Environment Minister said what he said, that there had been no changes. Are you concerned that you're not going to get support with some of these? Well, I think the people will speak loud and clear on that. Uh, I think I've heard from every single person I've talked to that uh, how ludicrous that comment that the federal 
extreme federal environment minister has made. It's about building roads. We, we cannot live in a country that doesn't build new roads, build more infrastructure, build better projects. Um, but, you know, the, the people of Ontario can count on Premier Ford and our government to continue making those investments. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, the, the federal government, uh, I, I hope, comes to the table and comes to their senses on uh, on this. You know, I invited Minister Guibault for a ride with me along some of our busiest highways and roads across this province so he could see firsthand the challenges. You know, when he says just walk to work or just bike to work, uh, uh, it couldn't be more out of touch with, with people that live uh, in so many different parts of this province and how big of a challenge that is. So um, I hope they get their act together on this. Um, we need the investments into uh, both public transit and highway infrastructure across this province and build those new roads to help families and, and businesses grow and prosper. And uh, we'll continue to hold their feet to the fire on that because uh, it's very critical as a province to make sure we do that. Bradmeet Singh Sarkaria, Minister of Transportation with the Government of Ontario, uh, talking about the Get It Done Act and what that means for transportation around this province. Bradmeet, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Really appreciate it. Remember the old days in the movies? You know, like some gangster, like some bad guy would lean into the, into the side window of a car and you'd have a coat hanger and pull up the door. And in the lock, and he'd open the door, and then he'd climb under the dashboard, he'd get two wires, and they'd spark together, and boom, the engine would take off to life, and off they go. And um, there you go. It was days of Bonnie and Clyde, maybe. Anyway, um, then it, it, it moved to other forms of, of electronics and, and the, the, the infamous key fob. Now the key fob, put your key fob. So what you do is you dig a hole in your backyard and you put your key fob in it every night. Now they don't even need that because they've got a laptop. They sit in your front uh, step or in the passenger seat or the driver's seat and they just plug in and, and, and reprogram everything right there. So what next? And should we bring in uh, like some big company to take over this and, and finally end it once and for all? Uh, or is that possible? David Shipley with the cybersecurity expert, CEO, Boseron Security and here now. David, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks for having me. So clearly, David, cars are more and more software than they are anything now. Um, is this something we should leave to the professionals? Do you think we could actually make a dent in this if, if we just had a different approach? Oh, I, I know we could have a, a dent in, in the approach. The, the challenge is cybersecurity uh, defenses of cars have not come up with the cybersecurity, kept up with the cybersecurity theft innovations of criminals. It's why when you're watching those videos of uh, Lexuses being stolen lately in the GTA and they're popping the headlights off, why are they popping the headlights off to steal mm. the car? Because the uh, they're able to get the cabling into the car, plug their device in and hack it. Um, car theft now is being enabled, not by those little flipper zeros that the federal government just recently lost its mind over, uh, no, it works on TikTok, not in, not in real life. It, it's these other basic flaws that can be traced back to that ancient time known as the 1980s. They, you know, everybody says, David, you know, it doesn't matter whatever you do. The criminals are just going to catch up to you. They're like a step behind you or a step ahead of you. Is that is that accurate or no? If you put up some resistance, you'll change behavior here. It is. You, you put up some resistance, you change behavior and it's cat and mouse. And the, and the yeah. challenge is right now, um, we've we've allowed the cat to catch the mouse um, far too easily. And so we need to make it harder. We need to raise the bar. And there are a number of standards. In fact, the European Union, the United Kingdom, and Japan and South Korea, which actually produce one-third of the world's vehicles in 2018, have signed on to a new cybersecurity standard called WP29. Uh, and um, hopefully, we can actually get Canada and the U.S., on board with the need to have smart laws for smart cars. Um, so is it the technology or is it the laws that need to be changed? Well, it, it is the laws because car manufacturers have to be dragged sometimes kicking and screaming to do right. things that in hindsight look common sense. I remind your listeners that seatbelts were a bloody awful fight for Ralph Nader <laughs> with some car manufacturers crying to politicians they would go bankrupt if they had to put seatbelts in their cars. I kid you not. Go Good point. Um, so, so they're not because they don't have to um, because it's a cost. Um and, and I think Canada needs a couple of different things. We need updated laws. There are more laws about the the type of material that goes into your anti-lock brakes than there are about the cybersecurity of your car, which is mm. 
Um, so, so we need new laws. That's not to say that we don't need to do other things differently. Like begrudgingly, um, you know, we are going to have to put car thieves in jail and keep them there. This yeah. catch and release thing is cool for salmon, not for car thieves. And and maybe we need to actually reinvest in port security, which, as a reminder to listeners, Canada gutted biblically in the 1990s and has never reinvested back in since. All right. Uh, we got about a minute left here, David. Uh, w- with what is going on now, summits and the prime minister now all of a sudden interested in this sort of thing. Is there a quick is there something Canada could do right now that would make a big dent? Uh, short term, um, put car thieves in jail and keep them there. That's a win. Mm. Uh, number two, start policing the ports, um, as the short term and then get these laws passed yesterday, which given the fact that we're two years behind in passing critical infrastructure laws to protect pipelines, I'm not thrilled that they're going to pay enough attention to, but that's the long-term solution, particularly as we move to EVs and plug-in hybrids. The cars are getting smarter. Criminals are getting smarter. Our laws have to get smarter. And here's the other thing, David. One expert pointed out, this is, you know, they have the same cars in the United States, yet per capita, they, we have to seem to have a target on our chest here. Uh, they, we, we seem to have more of it here, even though they have the same car worldwide. Oh, well, absolutely. Because if, if you're a criminal and the consequences are low for your crime and the rate of success is this high, which is to say it's stupid easy to steal cars right now, um, you're going to do it. Criminals are lazy. They're not stupid. Um, And we are the easy place to steal. And we've got to change that equation. There's short term, there's midterm, and there's long term. But, you know, what we don't have is time. we got to get moving. David Shipley with us, cybersecurity expert, CEO of Oseron Security Auto Theft. How do we stop it? David, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, it's interesting. We were talking last week. Uh, you know, we were uh, we were monitoring Canadian Tire and what they were going through. And is, is that a sign of what's to happen with the economy moving forward? Because they were into a soft spot. Then, of course, the recession word uh, comes up again. And I remember talking with experts. You know, if we talk... And it seems like for two years, at least, we've been talking about on the verge of a recession. Are we in a recession? We're very close, but we're not quite there. But, you know, if you keep talking about being on the verge of a recession, sooner or later, psychologically, aren't we in a recession? Because people play off of that. Uh, so uh, it's fascinating what is and what is our perception of that. And you balance that with today, good news, relatively good news that inflation fell um, and, and it's sitting right now at 2.9%. Now, of course, months and months of increasing uh, or increases certainly doesn't help, but at least it is leveling off. Where does that leave our psyche? Let's bring in Moshe Lander, Senior Economics Lecturer with Concordia University and here now. Moshe, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. We have talked about this before. If people are in that psyche that they're on the verge of a, re- a recession, they're going to sort of prepare for that and, and cut back and theoretically uh, aren't, isn't it the same? Aren't we on in one or as close to one as we'll get without being in it? Yeah, the talk all along was, you know, would we have a recession? Would we not have a recession? Soft landing, hard landing. Uh, this was this was a perfect uh, soft landing here. The the Bank of Canada did exactly what they needed to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the work is not done yet, but you know, there, there's not really a sign that there's a recession. We had jobs growth. Uh, the economy didn't tip into negative growth. Uh, unemployment has gone up, but it was going up from essentially record lows. So, you know, it's a pretty good economy, relatively speaking. You just have to look in the right places for it. And if you can look past the housing market, uh, there's generally good stuff that's going on out there. Uh, this is probably the first time in a long time that we've had something that is um, uh, statistically positive. Uh, do you see this changing? Do you think do you, you see this changing the psyche? No, um, I, I've been across Canada today doing interviews and the, the consensus seems to be that, no, the sky is still falling and that there must be something wrong with the numbers because I don't see low inflation. But I think part of it is just a, a complete misunderstanding as to what falling inflation means, right? As long as you understand that prices are going to continue to rise, it's just they're not yeah. going to rise as quickly. Uh, then the fact is that today's news is positive that they're not rising as quickly Food prices are now rising by something a little more normal looking. Uh, but it, it's really that headline of the, the housing market that really has people upset. 
and really obsessing on that. And I can understand why it's a big part of their budget. Uh, but, you know, as far as StatsCan is concerned, it's about 30 to 40 percent of your budget. So it means the other 60 to 70 percent is rising by about two, two and a half percent, which is exactly what it's been for the last 30 years. So uh, you're, you're right as your earlier point. It, it's psyche. It's psychological at this point. And I think that if you want to be negative about things, you'll see negativity everywhere. That being said, Moshe, considering where we are and or where we've been and the increases that we've seen in the past, I mean, people are still feeling the pinch. This isn't going to change that. Right. And the big issue is not how fast prices are rising, but the next topic that's going to start to dominate the cycle is how fast are our wages rising in relation to those prices. And so we've had a few years where wages have not kept pace. And so that's eaten into our real purchasing power. Uh, the, the next issue is going to be, do we try and fight to make up for that, which the Bank of Canada will strongly discourage and has discouraged? Or are we going to say, all right, this is a lost three or four years. This is the new level. Let's try and now move forward and just put this behind us as a very terrible period uh, in recent Canadian history. And, and let's just try and move past this. Uh, depending on how we take that next step is going to determine the direction of the Bank of Canada. It's also going to determine the direction of our, our next government uh, and, and how we see things. Do we have to get to 2%, Moshe? It's the number that you really want to get to. Um, yeah. The Bank of Canada technically can accept anything between 1% and 3%. So the 2.9% today is technically within their range. What the Bank of Canada needs to see, though, is that this is just not a one-off blip. And right. they need to also see the Canadians accept that this is the new normal. Uh, the way that we can signal new normal is through uh, surveys and uh, you know gauge what our understanding is of what 2.9% means. But it's also going to be the way that we approach our employers. That if we go to the employers and say, I want a 5% raise, then clearly we don't get that inflation needs to be between 1% and 3%. The only time that more than a 3% raise is justified if it's backed by productivity gains. And if we're not going to the boss saying, I'll work 2% harder and just give me a 3% cost of living to go with it, uh, then Bank of Canada is going to say, see, you still don't get it. And at some point, those wages spill over into broader inflation. We can't move on interest rates just yet. Moshe Lander with us, senior economist, our senior economics lecturer with Concordia University, talking about interest rates and where they are today. Moshe, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we know that there's an inquiry going on into and committee into regards uh, to uh, foreign interference. Um, and, uh, um, you know, many people are questioning if it will go far enough, if there's too many restrictions on uh, access and such. And at this point, uh, we've had a couple of groups pull out because they don't trust everyone involved in the process. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst and here now. Phil, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am Scott. So, uh, what are you, what are your thoughts about these two groups that have pulled out, and the reason for that uh, for them pulling out? Okay, so the groups, Scott, are a Uyghur group. The Uyghurs are the, the Muslims in Northwest China that have been repressed mm-hmm. by the Chinese government for many years now. And this is the Canadian Friends of Hong Kong, I believe, are the second ones. They do have legitimate legitimate concerns because, in essence, they're going to probably say things that the Chinese government doesn't want to hear. And because it doesn't, it doesn't brook criticism. It's a communist country, right? They, they do no wrong. And I think there is some legitimate fears that, you know, if they do say something at the, at the, at the inquiry, uh, China will be listening. And in fact, there could be pressure on them or their families. Now, I know, I mean, I've talked to bigger Canadians, Scott, and they have told me that there's not so subtle threats against them and their families if, if they complain about conditions in Xinjiang province. So I understand why they're reluctant and reticent to appear before the inquiry, because there's no guarantees that they might not suffer down the road. And what does this have to do with other people who are at these hearings who may be giving, uh, who, who may be given permission to question or, or certainly um, uh, credentials that maybe they question? Well, this is what I'm, I'm confused about. I mean, this is not a trial. This is an inquiry where witnesses, and, and by the way, in the first week, several people I used to work with at CSIS, you know, made their appearance before the inquiry. My impression, maybe I get inquiries all wrong, Scott, is that you go and you, you present what you think is happening, but it almost seems like they're going to be cross-examined by certain people 
And these people are the ones that they think might be, you know, kowtowing to the Chinese or being hmm. influenced by China. So I, I don't quite get the structure of the inquiry. Why not just let them present their facts and, and not have to be challenged by people who may, in fact, uh, be doing things that are just going to make things worse? Uh, quote, we have grave concerns regarding the objectivity and the security integrity of the Foreign Interference Commission of Inquiry, primarily due to the standing being granted to individuals suspected to have strong ties to the Chinese consult, uh, consulates and their proxies, say Canadian Friends of Hong Kong. Uh, we, denou- we denounce the granting of full standing to MP Handong and Michael Chan and intervener status uh, as well to another individual. So, uh, should they be allowed to question or how, how did they even get involved in the process? Boy, if I knew the answer to that one, Scott, I'd be a gazillionaire. I really have no idea. Cause I, I know a friend of mine who did appear before the inquiry. I mean, there are lots of people who put their applications for it and I'm not sure what the criteria were to decide, you know, whether person A gets on, whether person B does not. So you're probably asking the wrong person there, but I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like inviting the crook into your house after he's already ransacked it, isn't it? I mean, these are only allegations against the MPs. We've got to be careful here. But why would you invite people against whom there are, you know, these thoughts and these beliefs who are going to be undermining the process in the first place? Again, to me, it just it, it calls into question, why are we having an inquiry in the first place? And you and I have talked a lot, Scott. If, if the government had listened to CISA's intelligence 15 years ago, we wouldn't be in this basket right now. Um, it, it just seems odd, you know, listening to what is going on in, in the information that's put forth is one thing, but letting other people ask questions seems to already have influence on the committee who's studying influence. Well, I mean, I know, it's, it's, you know, this would be a Monty Python skit if it weren't serious, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, like I said, this isn't a trial. This is a, a, an attempt to inform the Canadian public. And alas, inform the Canadian government, which already knew how they listened to thesis 15 years ago about what's happening. So, no, I, I, I don't get it, Scott. I'm not sure why these people were allowed to do this. And again, I, I don't understand the process itself, but it seemed to me to be completely counterproductive. Um, what is the disadvantage of losing uh, the testimony of these two groups? Well, um, because they've been the major victims of Chinese aggression and Chinese interference and influence in our society. As I said at the outset, Scott. China does not like to be criticized. They're a perfect society if you listen to Xi Jinping. And so if you've got groups that, that can tell us in quite great detail exactly what China's up to, when it's been doing it, how it's been doing it, and, and, and when it was doing it, then that would, that would enhance the inquiry's findings and, and lead the government to perhaps make some decisions on what to do about it. So you have two major players who are afraid to testify for their own safety or that of their families. It simply means the inquiry will be um, short of those, of those testimonies. And as a consequence, the results won't be complete. Uh, it appears, and and I don't want to go too far, but it appears that the Chinese Communist Party has already influenced the inquiry into interference by allowing these two people to even pose questions to the, these groups. Oh, now you're sounding conspiratorial, Scott. Come on, we got to have a serious conversation here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> No, no I mean, <laughs> no, but seriously, how, like you said, how does the fox get invited into the hen house to ask questions? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Or maybe it's the pan in the hen house. I, I, don't, I don't know if pandas eat hens or not. But anyhow, I, I don't know, Scott. It, like I said, it, it just really makes a mockery of this whole thing. We know the government dragged its feet for how many months? They didn't, they didn't want to call this inquiry in the first place. If you remember, the prime minister says we don't need an inquiry. Now we've got one, and it's going to be a half-assed one at best. No, it just it makes us it makes a mockery of, of what we're trying to do here, and it, it undermines um, the ability of Canadians to understand exactly who's who in the zoo, and, and more importantly, um, how do we get to the point where we we stop these people from doing these types of things? To me, it's just it becomes a joke. And you know, um, whether it's it's half arsed or not, or or even covers half of what it's supposed to cover, and is a watered down, diluted version mm-hmm. of that's one thing. But then for it to become as controversial as what it's even studying, that's just drawing more attention to the issue. Um, well, and if there's a silver lining, so I can be a little bit optimistic here. Uh, more Canadians now know that there's a group of Uyghur Canadians who have been threatened. Canadians now know. The people from Hong Kong who are speaking out against the Chinese Communist Party and the government of Hong Kong are trying to, you know, effect change there. So that's a positive thing, that, that we have a better idea as to, you know, who's been affected here in Canada. They're willing to testify, but the conditions aren't right. So I, and I guess at the end of the day, Scott, we've all learned a little bit more. 
And maybe that will help us. And I say maybe try to figure out what to do next. Uh, do you have any confidence in this inquiry at all? Uh, no. Uh, I don't have confidence in many inquiries because they'll, they'll come up with an 85-page report with 142 recommendations, some of which may be fulfilled, some of which may not. And this is going to die, and I don't think it's going to make much of a difference. And again, <laughs> let your intelligence services do what, what you pay them to do to advise you on what to do about this. That would have been e- easier and, by the way, much cheaper for the taxpayer solution. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, the ongoing foreign interference inquiry, and um, whether it will be credible in the end or not. Phil, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. You too, sir. Take care. We were talking about how uh, everybody's back. The MPPs are back at uh, Queen's Park, the legislature, after a 10-week holiday. But... And then I got this note from Mary. I keep hearing the media today saying the MPPs are back at Queen's Park today after a 10-week holiday. You honestly believe they do nothing in those 10 weeks? The MPPs I know are in their constituency offices during their weeks uh, working to help answer issues in community events, etc. I'm a fan of your show, but this comment isn't fair to the hardworking MPPs I know that do their job well and love what they do. Mary. So there you go. So they haven't been on a holiday for 10 weeks. They've been in their constituency offices, busy doing stuff that they need to be doing in order to, um, you know, make everything work. So uh, that being said, we'll ask for some clarity. Let's bring in Sabrina Nanji, publisher, Queen's Park Observer. And here now, Sabrina, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. So, Sabrina, before we start, I, I read you, or you heard the note that I got. What do they do during the 10-week period? I mean, I, I certainly didn't mean to blow it off like they're, you know, sitting in the sun for 10 weeks. But what, what do they do during those Christmas breaks? Yeah, well, I guess Mary's right. Um, it's a lot of constituency work. So, mm-hmm. you know, when the House is in session, and, and we just kicked off the spring session today, uh, most politicians are at Queen's Park. They're doing house duty. They're at committee. They're kind of doing the nitty gritty um, of policymaking and lawmaking. But during the winter recess and the summer recess, they are back in their riding. That's when they can connect, you know, uh, maybe more face to face with their constituents. Uh, they do a lot of events. Uh, and I will say, though, to your point, some some politicians do actually go on vacation, too. Uh, I know mm-hmm. our prime minister has landed in hot water for that. But uh, I also know some ministers at Queen's Park managed to get in some sun uh, as well. So it's, it's, it's all about balance. And, and, you know, not to take anything away from the commitment it, it, you know, it takes to be a politician. It is not an easy gig. All right. That being said, what was it like today? First day of class when everybody's back and, you know, full of P and V. Yeah, it definitely felt like the first day at school because it's been a long time since a lot of these politicians uh, have, have been at Queens park since early December. Uh, we had a, a fiery question period, uh, but you know the, I guess the main event was the this new omnibus legislation that we got from the Ford government. It's the Get It Done Act, which is a nod to their 2022 campaign slogan. And my conservative sources at Queens Park are telling me that that's pretty much what they want to do. They want to get back on track after over a year of political fiascos uh, and policy reversals on the green belt official plan changes, uh, that wage capping bill 124, the list goes on and on. And so they really want to get back to uh, doing the things that the public generally expects from the Ford government, things like uh, getting highways built. And we saw some moves to do that today. Uh, You know, they're going to be streamlining the environmental assessment process. There are some concerns from environmental advocates about that. Um, And so we're still going through the fine print. But I do think that that's something that the Ford government wants to do. There's also been criticism that this is gimmicky legislation because it, it contains a, a mandate that a future government would have to you know be subject to a referendum if they want to introduce carbon pricing. Uh, they've banned future road tolls on highways except the 407, which is our uh, most expensive toll route in this province. Um, but these are things that are considered red meat, I think, for the conservative base. Um, and as a bonus, it also politically wedges new liberal leader Bonnie Crombie who's had the conservatives shaking in their boots a little bit. Um, and she hasn't really come out with a position on the carbon tax uh, uh, that Ottawa has levied on the province. So a, a big day. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of politics being thrown back and forth today. Uh, how does the opposition react to this? And who's going to get more attention? Because obviously it's Merritt Stiles who's the, the, Fed, or the provincial opposition, but Bonnie Crombie seems to be getting a lot of the attention. How, how do you see this playing out? Yeah, that's 
I mean, that's a great point. I I guess in my whole spiel, I didn't really talk about official opposition NDP leader Marit Stiles, and and she's the one you know who actually has that title of of being the the person who's holding Doug Ford to account, and and she really did you know uh, hold his feet to the fire in question period. But at the same time, we have seen in public opinion polling that the NDP is falling behind while the Liberals make up the gap. Uh, the Conservatives are, are still in the lead, but it's a close call, especially in key ridings. So moving forward, uh, what do you think this is going to look like, especially with Bonnie Crombie not being represented at this point? Yeah, I mean, there's, I guess there's two uh, ways to look at this. Obviously, Bonnie Crombie doesn't have a seat in the legislature. She's not there in question period like Marit Stiles can be. But the Liberals also don't have recognized party status. Uh, they're mm. in third place and they don't have as the same legislative resources or time. And so a lot of folks are wondering if Bonnie Crombie would be better to, you know, spend these next two years before 2026 touring the province, introducing herself to people outside the GTA where, you know, former Mississauga mayor, she's well known, she's popular. Uh, the rest of the province needs to get to know her and what she's all about. Meanwhile, she can also fundraise. Uh, but I, I do think that Bonnie Crombie needs to maybe do a little bit of a better job getting um, her policies and platform together. She had some trouble today answering questions uh, straightforwardly, uh, you know, over her stance on the carbon tax. The Ford, the Ford government has painted her as the queen of the carbon tax. She says she doesn't really have a position on it. That's why I say this omnibus legislation forces her into a political wedge here. Um, and she also couldn't really say whether or not she'll run for a by-election in Milton. So this is the seat that Parm Gill opened up a uh, former former red tape reduction minister who's now running for Pierre Polyev and the, and the federal conservatives. Milton is just next door to Mississauga. This could be somewhere where Bonnie Crombie could win, take a seat. You know, she claims she's a, a leader that can win. This is her chance to show it. Um, but it, it's a risk as well. So there's, she says that she hasn't made up her mind on that. Um, and I think she had a maybe a little bit of trouble, but it's still early days for her yet uh, when it comes to you know, having a stance on, on the things that really matter to Ontarians because Ontarians are going to know where she stands on a lot of issues. Sabrina Nanji with us, publisher, Queen's Park Observer. The Ontario Legislature returns today. Return today. Sabrina, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Thanks so much for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, this month the city of Hamilton is launching its or launched its employee employer one survey in partnership with workforce planning. Uh, it's a citywide business survey uh, talking about the importance of uh, development questions that allow for a greater understanding of local hiring needs and businesses ch- and business challenges moving forward, especially in a post pandemic world. Let's bring in Travis McCarl, digital media coordinator, workforce planning, uh, workforce planning Hamilton and here now, Travis, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, yes. How's it going? So far, so good, Travis. Uh, what's the objective here? What are, what are you trying to find out with this survey? What were you hoping to do? Uh, so basically, this is a it's a workforce survey to help collect data on Hamilton's businesses uh, and Hamilton's employers. So uh, Workforce Planning Hamilton, in partnership with uh, the City of Hamilton's economic development team, uh, we're just seeking Hamilton employers' feedback uh, to help improve our community. So uh, essentially, completing this survey will help uh, help us kind of help reveal the needs of local employers. Uh, and with that information, we can kind of support businesses to help resolve uh, some workforce challenges they may be facing. And what are you expecting to hear? What are you hearing in a post-pandemic world? Um, well, I mean, it definitely changes year to year. I mean, this is the I think it's the 11th year that we've done this. So, um, I mean, you can uh, you can view our report. Uh, from last year's survey on uh, workforceplanninghamilton.ca. Uh, but for this year, uh, we're focusing on kind of uh, what, what industries uh, Hamilton employers are involved in, uh, their business revenue, their short-term outlook for 2024, um, as well as uh, some important questions involving hiring difficulties, hard-to-fill positions, uh, inflation in terms of you know, buying, buying raw materials or, or selling, uh, selling products, uh, as well as just some, uh, some immigration questions involving hiring newcomers, uh, the classic minimum wage versus living wage debate, and uh, you know a, a couple other questions that uh, that I know can be uh, some pretty hot topics within uh, within Hamilton. How bad is the shortage? Because I mean, I don't think I've ever remembered you know just driving around everywhere you see help wanted signs like virtually everywhere. How how bad is the shortage? Uh, so if I remember correctly, I 
think the Hamilton's unemployment rate right now is at about, I think it's in the 5% range. Yeah. Uh, I know our, our, our data analyst would be able to speak more about that. Um, but yeah, the, the shortage is fairly bad. And that's kind of why uh, we're looking to, to hear from Hamilton employers and businesses about, uh, about hiring and, and about you know, immigration and, and all of that to kind of gauge gauge where Hamilton is. Uh, and, and with that information, we can kind of uh, send that out to some policymakers or, or, or anyone who may be able to create some change within Hamilton. Uh, obviously, this seems to be a countrywide, province-wide issue, especially when it comes to uh, employees and retaining employee, employees and such. Um, uh, what is this data actually used for? How can this shape planning in the future? So we'll be releasing a report, uh, as we do every year, and uh, as well as some presentations involving all the data we collect from this. Uh, so we, we, we make this, this large report, and we send it off to policymakers and uh, send it off to different areas of, of government and, uh, and the city of Hamilton uh, to try and create uh, some changes or create some chatter um, in terms of policies around, around these issues that we see on, uh, on, on the Employer One survey. What about participation rate? How do you get people involved? Uh, so, I mean, we're doing a big, big campaign right now. You can reach uh, Ham- or, sorry, uh, www.employeronehamilton.ca. Uh, so, I mean, we're, we're doing everything we can. We're email blasting uh, employers, big social media push. We're just trying to hit, hit anyone who's a, a business owner or employer uh, in Hamilton so that we can get uh, a large turnout this year and have uh, as much information as possible. And the, How, the information we... Sorry, the information we collect is also, uh, it's, it's all anonymous. So, I mean, like, um, like, the anonymized data will be shared with the City of Hamilton and Workforce Planning Hamilton's community research partners, but it's all treated as strictly confidential um, responses that are just released in aggregate form without revealing any specific information about any, any specific businesses. Has the, has the survey changed over the years? Is, is it much different from when and now from when you first started this? Yeah, definitely. So uh, just just a good example of that is, you know, the two years prior to this, there were so many questions involving, you know, the pandemic, um, yeah. you know, how people were, were faring, how businesses were faring before the pandemic versus how they're faring afterwards. So, um, you know, with it being, you know, 2023 going into 2024, a lot of these questions now aren't, aren't so shaped around the pandemic as we're starting to, you know, get back to back to normal life. So the previous two years were definitely more pandemic based. And obviously the years before that, you know, we've had a different economy all those years. So the questions vary year to year. And that's why it's important for anyone who's already filled out this survey in previous years to come back and fill it out again. Uh, are you are you positive there's lots of opportunity? Is there opportunity where we are now? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, uh, Workforce Planning Hamilton, uh, we, have, we have a website, we have a job board, Hamilton's largest job board. So there's always Tons and tons and tons of jobs being posted on that. Uh, you can also check out our website for uh, all our reports involving involving anything workforce statistic based revolving Hamilton. So all, all the data is there, and that's that's what we do. We collect the data and we we reveal it to the Hamilton public. So every everything's there for you to look at, and uh, that's that's kind of why we're here. Travis McCarl with us, digital media coordinator, workforce planning Hamilton uh, on the employee employer one survey, trying to read where Hamilton is and what we need moving forward. Travis, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you very much. You too. Do you remember COVID-19? Do you remember the global pandemic? Do you remember not having a clue what this was all about, what was going to happen, especially in the, you know, the first year, uh, in the early months of all of this? I remember thinking, I remember being told by my boss, you know, you're going home to work and you'll be home by Wednesday and laughing in his face. And then that's where we all went. It was just, it was incredible when you think about it. And now, and I remember talking during this, that, you know, we're to experts and such. It seemed like every day we had medical experts on and what have you. Uh, we're going to be studying this for years and years and years to come to find out not only the effects of it, what we did right, what we did wrong. And they've already started at McMaster University uh, talking about that, uh, you know, what happened with school closures way back when. And when masking and vaccinations were used, schools were not a major source of COVID-19 transmission, finds these reviews. And again, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty when you're dealing with a global pandemic that 
you've never experienced before. Uh, but it's going to be fascinating to see how this all pans out over the next little while. Let's bring in Sarah Neal Stramco, Assistant Professor, Department of Health Research Methods, Evidence and Impact at McMaster University, and is with us now. Sarah, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, yes. Thanks for having me today. I think we're going to be studying this for decades, are we not, Sarah? I think you're right. I think there's uh, so much that we still have to learn and hopefully setting up the infrastructure for continued uh, research and integrating those research findings into decision making uh, if and when we're in a situation that's like this again. So what's the objective here of what you're doing at Mac? I mean, obviously, hindsight's 2020. You make some you get some hits, you get some misses when you're dealing with something like this. What, what was your objective here? What were you trying to do? So this uh, paper that we've just published uh, last week really represents the culmination of three years of work by our team at the National Collaborating Center for Methods and Tools, looking at uh, the transmission of COVID-19 in schools and daycares. So we actually began this work um, back in April and May of 2020. And as you as you said, we really were working blind at that point. Uh, the, the novel coronavirus, as we called it at the time, um, was brand new. Uh, public health decision makers had a lot of questions about how to safely reopen and operate schools and daycares. And at that point, we were really relying on information from other infectious diseases, studies that looked at transmission in schools before those initial stay-at-home orders were in place. Um, so what our team did was, was take a look at all of the scientific evidence that had been published from around the world and try to make bring that all together, um, considering sort of the strengths and limitations of each individual study um, and bring that to decision makers to inform the policies and procedures that were put in place. Um, we continue to update that report uh, on a regular basis. So uh, we were later able to integrate data from other countries that opened before we did, um, opened schools before we did, like Australia, who's on a different school schedule. Um, and then as time went on, a lot of other things changed in the context of the pandemic. Uh, variants of concern became more prevalent vaccinations came into play. So we actually updated our review 18 times from that initial uh, report that we, we released in 2020 uh, up until the last version, which we completed at the end of 2022, to really bring together all of the evidence that was available, critically appraise it so we could highlight which ones were highest quality and then more trustworthy, and then bring those findings together to kind of summarize what we know. So what do we know? What worked? What didn't work? So what we know in schools, um, after that initial shutdown and stay-at-home order was in place, so this is in those later uh, phases of the pandemic, not that right. immediate March 2020 shutdown, but in those later periods, um, when schools were either reopened or subsequently closed again, when infection prevention and control measures like uh, masking, like vaccination were in place, reopening or closing of schools did really not seem to have much impact on levels of community transmission. And rather, the patterns that we saw in the community, um, or sorry, in schools, were really reflective of patterns that were already happening in the community. So, of course, that's not to say that no transmission happened within school settings. It absolutely mm -hmm. did. But mm -hmm. the opening or uh, opening of schools did not result in uh, a mass um, explosion of transmission that we were concerned about at the time. And then subsequently closing schools, uh, independent of all the other measures that were put in place, didn't seem to reduce transmission as as one hopes it would. I remember way back when that it, it seemed that um, this was a much more fatal disease, much more serious uh, with those that were older as opposed to the younger uh, kids in school. Is that accurate? Absolutely. And I think a lot of the concern also came from not only what's happening with, with students within the schools, but also what happens when they go home from school. So if uh, children right. are contracting uh, COVID within the school setting, maybe that the uh, outcomes are not as serious for them, but they are going home uh, to family members who maybe they live with older grandparents and whatnot, uh, people with chronic health conditions who are at more risk of serious disease. And so all of those concerns are really valid. Um, but we did see over time that particularly within the school setting, um, that risk of transmission at the, the kind of population or group level in a community um, did not, the transmission didn't seem to change much. So um, once masking and the policy and the vaccination started, that was less of a threat. So um, is it is it uh, assuming now we would say if something like this happened again, and I'm sure everything's different, we would be less likely to do that, even with the fact that you may have older uh, generations at home, it doesn't seem that the school was a generation point, uh, a spreading point. 
Yeah, it's really difficult to say um, in in terms of future pandemics because it would be really dependent on how similar or dissimilar uh, a yeah. future virus would be to the co- to the COVID nineteen virus. So we know um, that this virus really acted quite a bit differently than than expected um, and was really a unique virus. So in terms of it's really difficult to see into the future in terms of how applicable these findings would be in those settings, but it at least gives us a starting point. And, and really, I think the, the, the big take-home message from this is really the importance of uh, conducting and sharing the research in real time so that teams mm-hmm. such as ours, there's other uh, synthesis teams at McMaster and around the country um, who are really experts in finding that, that information, interpreting the results from individual studies, uh, identifying which ones are, are higher quality and more trustworthy and bringing them together so that we can be uh, nimble and adapt our policies and recommendations uh, in light of the data as time goes on. Uh, we remember when this all started, nobody knew what it was, but everybody broke down those silos and started, not everybody, but more and more breaking down of silos, working together across uh, regional, international lines and such. Do we still have that mentality? Are we still all rowing in the same direction? I think that's, I, I don't have a good answer to that question. And I'm not sure. I like to hope that um, the, the sort of trust and, and interest sort of at the policy um, decision-making level is, is um, has more of an ear towards using scientific evidence and bringing that information into their decision-making. Um, but, it, but it's really difficult to know. Uh, so really, at the end of the day, was this that once vaccinated and masking, school settings were fine because they were masked and, and, and were following protocol or because of the difference in age? Are we ever are we able to to specify? I'm not sure that we'll ever really have a, a, a solid answer to that question um, right. because there was so much variation in the way those policies were implemented and, and the different school settings. But what we do see is sort of the more... Um, levels of protection that we could put in place in schools help to minimize that risk. And that across all of the different measures that we looked at, um, that there was sufficient data to examine vaccination, masking, and then test to stay policies. So those were policies where students had to have a negative test before they can return to the classroom, rather than sending everyone home for a mandatory 14-day quarantine period. So uh, implementing a test to stay policy did not increase uh, transmission within the school setting, but actually allowed just, uh, students and staff to stay in the classroom, which has important benefits, as we all know. All right, McMaster University studying uh, the fallout of COVID-19 and what we have learned. Sarah Neal Stramko with us, Assistant Professor in the Department of Health Research Methods, Evidence and Impact at McMaster University. Fascinating, Sarah. Thanks for the time. Be well. Yes, thank you. You too. Scott Radley, host of The Scott Radley Show. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Hope you are well, Scott. Do you want to talk about, and we'll try to hit both, um, the Ontario legislature going back today or your cell phones and cigarettes comparison? Well, it's not my comparison. There's a, there's a, there's a, a study out there, a, a, a yep. belief that smartphones have now replaced cigarettes. And not, you know, obviously literally, but as far as, you know, there was a time. Habitual. It's not that far back, Scott, and it's, it seems ridiculous now, but it's not that far back. You and I were both very much alive. Most people listening were when everybody had a cigarette in their hand all the yeah. time. And it seems yeah. crazy today to imagine that that was the, the thing. I remember when I first started in journalism back in the late eighties oh, and I know you would go going. into a newsroom oh, yeah. and you, it was, there was a blue haze. It's a haze. <laughs> and you, like everybody, it was one to the next. I don't know what, yeah. we, and now the idea of that, I mean, imagine if one person lit up a cigarette on an airplane yeah. today, people, <gasps> people would go crazy. They turn the plane, they turn the plane around. They would. But back in the day they had smoking and non-smoking, which meant one seat one row apart. And I was like, yeah, the smoke yeah. doesn't stop. So anyway, the point of this though, is that a lot of people are now saying we have reached that level of societal addiction with our cell phones, our smartphones. And years from now, the suggestion is they are going to look back at where we are now, the same way we look back at people who were smoking all the time going, what were they thinking? And I kind of agree with that. I can see where your point is. I mean, obviously not as deadly as, uh, as using a cigarette as opposed to a cell phone, but yeah, the way it consumes your space, I, I, I could see that. Sure. And not, okay. And not as deadly physically for sure. Using a smartphone is not going to turn your lungs black, no. 
Unless you're driving your car when you're supposed to be, you know. But yes, but there's that. I mean, how many, how many people have mental health issues because of social yep. media or things that are said about them or bullying that now they can't escape? Because once upon a time, if you were bullied at school, you could leave and come home and be safe. Now with social media, it is, you're always on social media. It's always there. So I, I really, I look at this suggestion that, that are made by some experts and I'm like, I don't, I don't disagree with this at all. I think there probably will come a day when some people, maybe another generation down the road will say, what were you people thinking? What were you thinking that you Mm. couldn't even go and sit on the toilet to do your business (laughs) for two minutes without taking your phone and doing something on it? It's funny, uh, cause you know, we're always saying, should we take them out of the classrooms? Who polices this? How do we da 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 da? And we were talking about car theft today and technology and, and, you know, what the, uh, manufacturers can do. And my guest brought up a valid point. You talking about smoking and smoking on airplanes. Remember seatbelts? When they said they were going to make seatbelts mandatory, it's like, no way, man, you can't do that. Yep. You know, and, and yet look how our opinion has changed on that issue. So my it's wife, sort of similar. My wife and I last night were flipping around on YouTube, speaking of social media and there was this, I don't know if you've ever seen You're this. You're flipping around on YouTube. Well, we're on you. Have you ever gone on YouTube on your TV? And looking flipped to, around. And there was, there's this guy and I don't know who he is, but he does this stuff looking back at the eighties. And of course this is sort of, you know, yours and my sweet spot and we're watching. <laughs> and one of the things that he's pointing out is back in the day when you were as a kid, you would lie in the back sill of your car window. On the, oh yeah. And, and, the, the, and you would laugh when your dad. That was, might be seventies. Well, maybe, but your dad would slam on the brakes and you'd go flying off and it was <laughs> hilarious. And, like a box of Kleenex. Yeah. And, <laughs> and again, we look back at this stuff and you're right today. Could you imagine what your response would be if there was a little three-year-old lying in the back ledge of a window or sitting backwards in a station wagon, jumping, walking around with no seatbelt. You'd think what kind of idiot careless parents are they? And that was very normal. That was very, but you're right. Times change and our expectations or our, our tolerance for certain behaviors changes very quickly. And the interesting thing, Scott, is for all you, you just said it. A lot of people said, why would I ever wear a seatbelt? We don't just, our tolerance doesn't just change. We become like ardent evangelists almost the other way. We become offended if you don't do this kind of thing now. Yeah. What's wrong with you? Exactly. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. The conversation continues. Uh, whatever you want to talk about. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great show. You too. Hope you had a great family day, by the way. I hope your family's well. I hope your family's well. Did you have a good one? We did. It was, uh, you know, it was family day. Everyone's home and sort of doing their own thing. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's in a separate room on their own phone. Exactly. Yeah. That's pretty much family day 2024, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. That's it. All right, Scott. Thank you. Have See a good you. one. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. And I'm going to repeat this one, and it was sent uh, earlier on from Mary when I was uh, talking about politicians being uh, returning from a 10-week holiday. Uh, and Mary emails, I keep hearing the media today saying that MPPs are back at Queen's Park today after a 10-week holiday. You honestly believe they do nothing in those 10 weeks? The MPPs I know are in their constituency offices during those weeks working to help and answer issues and at community events, etc. I'm a fan of your show, but this comment isn't fair to the hardworking MPPs I know that do their job well and love what they do. Mary, I stand corrected. Keep right, except to pass. 